Hello, and welcome to Mayo Talks, a brand new podcast from Mayo Clinic, featuring expert insight on today's medical issues. You can learn more about us at mayotalks.com. This week, we'll be highlighting talks from the annual Selected Topics in Internal Medicine Conference held in sunny Kauai, Hawaii. Today's talk, Frequently Asked Questions in Diabetes, was presented by Dr. Pankit Shaw. So I've, given a, I've been given a set of questions that you have. I'll start with the first one. Metformin in prediabetes. We'll address this question with cases. So the first case is that of a 66-year-old woman who has prediabetes. She did not have gestational diabetes during her three pregnancies in the past. She's obese, BMI is 32, and she has a osteoarthrosis of knee preventing her from jogging. She's very concerned that she'll become diabetic and what all she can do to prevent the diagnosis of diabetes. So my question for you is in order to prevent onset of diabetes, which of these statements is true? Metformin is unlikely to help. Physical activity and weight loss is unlikely to help. Joining a lifestyle program is unlikely to help, like the YMCA diabetes prevention program, or nothing works for diabetes, please vote. Nothing works for preventing diabetes. So uh, my actual correct answers are given towards the back. Hopefully I will discuss these answers so I don't have to tell you exactly what the correct answers, but it is, I read my feedbacks every year, so I have given the answers after my set of slides. This slide shows that people who have higher fasting glucose and those who have a higher body mass index are at a higher risk of developing diabetes over three-year follow-up period from converting from prediabetes to diabetes. Lifestyle intervention prevents diabetes in all categories, starting higher glucose or lower glucose, body mass index less or more, age less or more. However, Metformin prevents diabetes in those who have higher starting glucose, higher BMI, and are younger, and not those who are older, have lower body mass index, and have lower glucose to begin with. Moreover, in women who have had pregnancies, lifestyle prevents diabetes, whether we've had gestational diabetes or not, but metformin prevents diabetes in only those who have had gestational diabetes. So, Lifestyle intervention in form of a program, not telling the patient has to follow lifestyle, but a program prevents diabetes in about 60%, and metformin is helpful for those who are younger, have higher BMI than 35, and have had prior gestational diabetes, especially if their fasting glucose is very high. But then question comes up often is what are we trying to do by giving metformin to prevent Diabetes. Are we actually giving a pill to prevent diabetes so that we don't have to give a pill to treat diabetes? Uh, this quote from my friend Victor Montori. So, so far, there is no evidence that preventing diabetes by using metformin leads on to reduction in complications. This set of slides shows the ultimate rate of complications in people who were either, who either were randomized to lifestyle program, metformin, or placebo, and all the data we have is for retinopathy, neuropathy, and nephropathy, and so far, these have not been shown to be less 
by giving these measures. So the situation is something like this. This, of course, taken from New York, New Yorker, one of those uh, dishonest people. So for metformin, I would say, uh, no, we should not possibly use metformin till the time it, real sh it shows real benefit in terms of reduction in dead bodies, less heart attacks, less loss of a limb, kidney failure, blindness, and stuff like that. And in any case, just to remind you, metformin has not been approved for treatment of prediabetes or prevention of diabetes. Next is a big section on insulin and how do I choose. For the last 20 years, we have had many, many new insulins available. We have rapid-acting insulins. We have the regular insulin, which is otherwise called short-acting insulin when used in very high doses. It works both as short and long-acting insulin. We have the intermediate-acting insulin, the NPH. We have the long-acting insulin, very, very long-acting insulin. We have the pre-mixed insulins. Another one going to come in the market is the combination of long-acting insulin with the rapid-acting insulin. And we are going to soon have in market combination of long-acting insulin with GLP-1 receptor agonists. These have all been approved. The three of last ones are not in market yet, but very soon they'll be. And we have lots of colorful insulin delivery systems, including this green tip syringe that I'll talk about later on. I don't have the slide in a slide set, but Dr. Simha insisted I should mean put this in. So this is uh, the action profile of rapid-acting insulin. Quickly acts, quickly disappears. Three hours, all gone. This is short-acting insulin. Little longer, little la lasts a little longer. The intermediate-acting insulin uh, peaks in about six to eight hours, lasts about 12 hours, and there is longer-acting insulin, even longer-acting insulin, and the long, long-acting insulin. So we have an array of insulins available, and of course, we have so far 70-30 pre-mixed insulin or 75-25 pre-mixed insulin. We don't have the other ones available, which is supposedly two peaks. So before I go to the cases and discuss these cases individually, let's first of all clarify what is the role of these insulins. The long-acting insulin, we call basal insulin, background insulin, is to maintain blood glucose where it is. It is not its job to bring down glucose from high to normal. We rely on the patient's own insulin secretion for that in case we are using as a supplemental insulin. It just prevents blood glucose from rising if we don't eat food, carbohydrates, etc. It has nothing to do with meals and the dose does not change if the patient does not eat a meal if the dose is right. And as I said, it is often used as supplemental insulin if this is the only insulin we are using in the sense this is supplementing patient's own insulin secretion. Rapid-acting insulin, we call bolus insulin, prandian insulin, carbohydrate insulin, whichever one you call it. The primary purpose of this insulin is to bring glucose back, back to the baseline after a few hours of having eaten something. So if this insulin prevents blood glucose from rising, and this insulin brings it back where it started from. Hopefully, the blood glucose will be all okay, except that it is not. So once in a while, we use this rapid-acting insulin to bring down glucose a notch by using a unit or two or three extra insulin, which we call correction doses, and some people call sliding scale, which is sort of a misnomer, but anyway. And this, of course, has nothing to do with time of day. It's something to do with time of meal. If I'm eating now, I need meal dose now. If I eat my breakfast at 4 o'clock in the morning, I needed the dose at that time. 
So in background of that, let's start with problem one. All of us have had patients who are on oral agents or non-insulin agents and blood glucose are going high. This is a classical example, 56-year-old man, -year man, diabetes for seven years, metformin, glimepiride, A1C 7.7%. Morning glucoses are high, evening glucoses are higher, but higher but not higher than the morning glucoses. This is what happens mostly in people with type 2 diabetes early on in life till the time they lose most of their insulin secretion. So my question to you is how do we treat this patient? Do, give, do we give a long-acting insulin 16 units once a day? Intermediate-acting insulin 16 units once a day? Or give basal bolus regimen using glargine once a day and aspart three times a day? Or give sliding scale insulin? Please vote now. So when we use basal insulin as supplement, we are, using, we are supplementing patients' own insulin secretion. We can certainly use NPH insulin once a day, usually given at bedtime, because that is when the insulin deficiency is the most and brings down the morning blood glucose, as we'll see in the next slide. Alternatively, we can use a longer-acting insulin at bedtime, or we can use long, long-acting insulin actually any time of the day. And of course, mostly this is added to the oral agents. Most of us will stop the sulfonylurea at this time because in all likelihood, it's not doing much. So this is the physiology of what is happening when we give NPH at bedtime. The glucose rises on its own overnight because there is not enough insulin to tell liver not to make glucose. We do that, we give extra insulin through the night and in early hours a little bit more, and the nighttime blood insulin rises and there is slightly supplemented insulin in the morning and the glucose falls in the morning, rest of the day it was not too bad to begin with and the numbers improve. How do we adjust these long, we can use longer acting insulin as well as NPH, except that NPH costs about one-tenth of the longer acting insulin if we bought from the appropriate stores. Talk about the long acting insulins, how do we adjust the doses? We actually keep increasing the dose till the time morning blood glucose is in goal, except we'll come back to this in a moment. This is often a problem that all of us face. A patient is on insulin for some time, plus minus oral agents, it's only long-acting insulin is that patient receiving. Morning blood glucose is in goal, even A1C is in goal, but the evening blood glucose is very high, patient develops hypoglycemia, patient delays breakfast, or, and as gaining weight also. So the same patient, after a few more years of diabetes, now has gained about five kilos, as delays his breakfast, gets hypoglycemic, Evening glucoses are substantially high, then morning glucoses, even some morning glucose and A1C is just fine. So this is what is happening. If we give glargine to these patients, the fasting glucose comes down and keep increasing the glargine dose, the basal insulin is increasing throughout the day and the glucose in the morning comes out all right. But this is coming out all right in the backdrop of blood glucoses declining overnight. Remember, that was not the job of long-acting insulin. The job of long-acting insulin is not to correct blood glucose, but that is what goes on. Patient doesn't eat, the glucose keeps falling. Then, of course, patient eats breakfast, it goes up but doesn't come down, goes up more and doesn't come down enough, and then overnight gradually comes down, except if the patient doesn't eat breakfast, it keeps going down, and patient has hypoglycemia. So here are we have situation. So in terms of long-acting insulin, when we use long-acting insulin, we titrated the morning glucose, as long as the glucose is not falling by itself, 
without any bolus insulin. That means if patient delays breakfast, checks glucose in the morning, and checks four hours later, but no breakfast, no nothing else, and the glucose is lower, that means the long-acting insulin is more than what we need, and plan probably is not a good plan for this patient. So when morning glucose is controlled, but evening is high and glucose decline when not eating, that means long-acting insulin is not a good plan by itself, where do we go from here? Well, we can go to basal bolus regimen in which we reduce the long-acting insulin and add a rapid-acting insulin at least with one of those meals. And I've given specific examples of these with some details of how many units to change, etc., in the bonus slides that you have. We can give NPH insulin twice a day, now higher dose in the morning and lower at night because patient eats throughout the day and is not secreting enough insulin, so it needs extra insulin in the morning and during daytime than it needs at night. We can give pre-mixed insulin before breakfast and before evening meal. This one is in the morning and at bedtime, difference between the two. And we can give long-acting insulin with GLP-1 receptor agonist, still not available as mixture, but we can use it separately. They have been approved for that. So there are some advantages and disadvantages of each one of these. The basal bolus plan requires multiple injections, multiple testing, and has very high cost. But it has more freedom of eating when they want to eat, how much they want to eat, whether they want to eat or not, and activity when they, whenever, whenever they want to be active because they can adjust the rapid-acting insulin accordingly. And pH twice a day is very much less expensive, 10 times less expensive than the insulin above. If bought from the right stores, I mean, uh, is less number of injection, less number of tests, but less freedom. If, if I take a larger dose in the morning, I have to eat my meals through the day. I cannot decide not to eat a meal later on. The pre-mixed insulin uh, is twice a day, uh, provides better blood glucose control than NPH, but is more expensive if we use the analogs, but is about the same price as NPH if we use NPH and regular combination, pre-mixed available from the right store, I mean. And then, of course, the combination of long-acting insulin and GLP-1 receptor agonist, less number of injections, less number of tests, more freedom to when to eat, etc., and often is associated with weight loss and not weight gain. Let's move on to the next patient. You've had patients who have been steroids or glucocorticoids and diabetes even without diabetes. The, the, the evening glucose are very, very high, and this is, this is a classical example, 36-year-old patient with lupus. Morning glucoses are okay, but evening glucoses are very high, and this is pre-meal glucoses, not post-meal glucoses. What would you do? Same options. So when we, associate, we talk about steroid-induced diabetes, steroid-induced hyperglycemia, steroid-induced worsening of hyperglycemia, they are called essentially by glucocorticoids, not by other steroids. The morning glucose is in goal, but evening is very high. There we want to use some insulin that works through the day, but not more insulin at night because morning blood glucose is okay to begin with. So NPH insulin once a day in the morning, pre-mixed insulin once a day in the morning can take care of that. One can use the aspart insulin with each meal, but certainly we prefer not to use sliding scale because that will cause low glucoses overnight. So we never use long-acting insulin, and sliding, sliding scale insulin is never a correct answer for any test. Uh, so let's go to the next question. How many of you have had patients with type 2 diabetes who have long-standing and glucoses are all over the place? Makes no sense. Some are high, some are low. 
Some are very, very high. It, it, you look at the log, and it's complicated log this 66-year-old patient has who is on the basal bolus plan, otherwise called multiple daily insulin injection, and look at the glucoses. They are from 40 to 300 almost, and you know, it makes no sense, no trends. There are hypoglycemias, there are hyperglycemias, et cetera. Where do we go from here? Well, first thing to do is to ask the patient, are you complying with the treatment? But that's not the right way of asking. The right way of asking would be, are you adhering to the treatment? Uh, maybe that's not the right way either. We should just see if the patient is concording the treatment. Uh, or in the first place, we should have made a decision in a shared fashion. But in any case, find out whether the patient is taking the insulin injections or not and taking the insulin injections properly. And I would recommend this particular paper, very published very recently in September 2016, for all your nurses to go through to assess whether the patient is taking in filling injection properly, injecting properly, rotating properly, etc. So injection technique is the first thing. After that, of course, inspecting and palpating the injection site, and the patient points to one point where he's injecting, patient has lipodystrophy in all likelihood. If the doses are small, pen is preferable to, to, to syringes. We can split the basal insulin, for example, glargine 32 once a day, we can split into 16 units twice a day because in 20, 30% people, glargine doesn't last for 24 hours. One day it lasts shorter, one day it lasts longer, I'll come back to that. We can use even longer acting insulin like Deglidec has a half-life of 25 hours, I'll come back to that again. And we can use insulin with less day-to-day -day variability like Deglidec as compared to Glargine, Glargine day-to-day -day variability, CV is 80%, and Degludec is about one-fourth of that CV. Now, how many of you have had patients with type 2 diabetes who are elderly or disabled, and we need to start some insulin, but for some reason, because physical reasons, social reasons, they just cannot take the insulin themselves, and a family member has to give, and this is an example of a patient I recently saw, 77-year-old woman, lives alone just above her clinical nurse assistant's daughter's apartment, uh, who has a shift job, the past medical history of stroke, some residual weakness, you're an oral agent, and you want a little bit of insulin, the question is slightly, options are slightly different. What is the best option? Glargine, NPH, Degledec, basal bolus plan, or sliding scale insulin, which of course is never a good plan. So this is a very interesting paper for the 30% who did not answer that question. The study was conducted with Degledec. Either Degledec was given at a regular time of the day or in other group, in randomized group, they were giving one day in the morning, next day evening, next day morning, next day evening, et cetera, through the week. And they showed that the hemoglobin A1C, fasting plasma glucose, self-monitored glucose, as well as risks of hypoglycemia were not different whether the insulin is given every day at the same time or given one day morning, one day evening, whenever the daughter is available to give the shot. So an elderly and disabled patient who need but cannot take the dose of insulin themselves, uh, taking degladec insulin once a day, irrespective of time of day, will at least provide supplemental background insulin. The last set of questions is about the patient with type 2 diabetes who require very, very high doses of insulin, so high a dose that patient has to take multiple doses, dial a dose, take one, take dial a dose, take again, etc. And this is an example of a patient with a body mass index, same as the age of 47, uh, diabetes for eight years, metformin and glargine, and aspart in such a way that it's taken three shots of glargine each time, and two shots of aspart each time patient takes the dose. And these are his blood glucoses, quite high. So options here are different. Do we use concentrated glargine with concentrated Lispro? Concentrated regular insulin three times a day. 
concentrated Degledec with concentrated Lispro, still basal bolus plan, or use sliding scale insulin. Please vote now. Many times there are no right or wrong answers, and you will see what my answers are towards the end. But when the doses are so very high that the patient has to take multiple doses injecting themselves, then we can switch them over to regular insulin U500. These are given with the three meals, about six hours, eight hours apart or so through the day. And they work both as rapid-acting insulin because they start working quickly, and as longer-acting insulin because they provide background insulin as well. And I've given specific example of how to switch over to this plan towards the end in the bonus slides. And this is a set of slides, the cases that I've discussed, and a couple more for you to review when you get a chance. So next question is, the commonly used performance measures for treatment of diabetes and which are least supported by evidence, and I'll go from R to E. This is one of those set of uh, measures of quality, hemoglobin A1C, poor control, that will be above 9%, uh, and, and other things as are listed here. But before I go in details of this, let me tell you a story. The story is about India. This is the president's house in India. That's where I come from. But this is the time about 150 years back when British ships were building this. The British sahibs were really upset at these wild animals who are killing human beings. So much so, in 1878, they came out with this report called Destruction of Life by Wild Animals and Venomous Snakes in India. And they showed that a lot of human beings were being killed by these wild animals, about 20,000 by snakes, for example, also by other animals. So they were really upset. They wanted to get rid of these wild animals. So what do they do? They, of course, come up with award for dead animals. They gave some money. Anytime you bring, for example, this table tells us how much money was given for each dead snake. As much as two rupees was given, that is about 60 to $80 in current term. A lot of money in India even today. So of course, what did Indians do? They started bringing in dead snakes. Over a period of time, they got a lot of dead snakes, a quarter million dead snakes, mostly poisonous snakes that we're paying, but they killed some tigers, leopards, bears, wolves, hyenas, and a few thousand other animals as well per year. But then, so this just goes to prove that if you give money to people, money will kill. This is an incentive to kill these animals. But also, this is an incentive for these people to raise these animals and kill them and collect money. <laughs> Soon, of course, Britishers realized that that's what Indians were doing. They were quite fed up of these people that they were just following the incentives. And they closed down this program. And snakes, as you may know, is considered holy in India. They wouldn't kill the snakes, snakes if they were not, going not getting any cash. They were masters in raising the snakes for some time. So ultimately, what did they do? They just released the snakes. So this, in economics, is called cobra effect. When an attempted solution of a problem actually makes the problem worse. In backdrop of the cobra effect, let me talk of the worst quality measure which is associated with incentives. Many physicians and, and other practitioners, their incomes depend on meeting these quality measures. So for me, I'll put the worst one as hemoglobin A1C of more than 9% as considered as bad, or if the A1C is not measured in the last 12 years. Before I say anything else, let me qualify 
That, of course, having A1C measurement, one side is a good idea, but at least think about diabetes. If we didn't do that, we wouldn't think about diabetes. But there are some other problems. There is danger of overzealous treatment in patients who are having recurrent severe hypoglycemia since A1C is not below the target. We may treat patients excessively who are you know, terminally ill or have dementia or other neurological problems and may actually cause more trouble than solve the problem. There is a danger of providers to believe that more than 9% is bad control. That means less than 9% is good control. And looking at all the people here in the room, many even outside that I can't look, if your endocrinologist tells you that 8.9% hemoglobin A1C is not bad, please fire her or him. And then, of course, talking of cobras, we've known of providers firing those patients whose blood glucoses don't reach in the target and A1C doesn't come the target. Easy question. Patient is not complying. Let's fire the patient. So, of course, all, this make, all these things makes things actually worse. Not that I'm not saying that quality measure is not a good thing, but we have to look at the quality of quality measure. And Steve Dubner and Steve Levitt, the free economics authors, give very good examples of how the incentive can be individualized, targeted, and not assuming that patients will do good when the incentive is cash, actually. So in my opinion, good medical practice cannot be driven solely by petty cash incentives. Mostly people do not do it because of cash incentives. They do because they want to be good. And that's what they've been told, that that is what is good. And of course, no better economist than Mark Twain said something about this long back, about the same time, actually, talking about Mrs. Clement's uh, endeavor, the best way to increase wolves in America, rabbits in Australia, and snakes in India is to pay a bounty on their scalps. Then every patriot goes to raising them. And same thing has happened with rats in Vietnam by French. The last point is about taking home, taking home some of the important points over the last year. I have a bunch of take-home points towards the end in the bonus slides. Um, but the few things that I want to highlight here that empagliflozin and liraglutide have been recommended for patients who have established cardiovascular disease to reduce risk of mortality. Not only that, actually FDA has approved empagliflozin for reducing cardiovascular deaths in people with type 2 diabetes. This will change the practice pattern substantially. But this will also change practice patterns, practice patterns substantially is the cost of treatment. And for once, American Diabetes Association has included the cost of treatment in the table of pharmacotherapy and have discussed quite a bit about it. And this comes in the backdrop of this. This is same Humalog and Novalog prices that were about $25 20 years back and that $258 by GoodRx this morning. So there's 10 times increase in the price. And during the same period, the price of a gigabyte of hard drive came down from almost $1,000 to less than a cent. This goes to prove that our system works very well when people are free to choose and are not told by someone else, you must buy this product. I'm not suggesting any solutions here, but we know what the solution is. Next thing, most of you've heard this somewhere or the other or read it yourself about metformin and kidney disease. We don't, give, we don't measure creatine only, we measure estimated GFR. And if it's less than 30, metformin is contraindicated. More than 45, it is safe to use. 30 to 45, don't start. If patient is already on it, discuss the risk, benefits, etc. Two numbers to remember, 30 and 45. 
And the last thing is about this green top syringe. If you're using U500 insulin, now it is available as a pen. So you can use the pen and, or if you are using a syringe and bottle, use a green top syringe because then you don't have to multiply by five or divide by five and I'm sure all of you have had this errors of patient getting five times the dose or five times less the dose because they were you using U100 syringe for U500 insulin. And I can discuss some more tomorrow at breakfast if somebody has any specific questions. So today we discussed about preventing diabetes. And I discussed that metformin has not been approved for prevention of diabetes, though it has been shown to be of some benefit in younger, more obese people who have had higher glucose and are a higher risk of developing diabetes. We discussed also that we, when we use basal insulin supplement, we can use NPH or longer-acting insulin. NPH glargine detamer is used at bedtime. NPH costs $25 for 1,000 units, and the other ones cost about $250 to $300 for 1,000 units. We discussed also that when the morning glucose is in control but evening glucose is high, of course, long-acting insulin alone is not supplementing patients' own insulin. It's doing more than that, and that's not the job of long-acting insulin. In that situation, we can go to basal bolus plan, starting with one bolus with a meal and then multiple boluses. We can go with NPH twice a day before breakfast and bedtime, higher dose in the morning, lower at night. We can go pre-mixed insulin with breakfast and with evening meal, or we can go with long-acting insulin with GLP-1 receptor agonist combination, which has the advantage of weight. We discussed about steroid hyperglycemia, steroid diabetes. We discussed we want to give long-acting insulin. Uh, we don't want to give long-acting insulin, but intermediate-acting insulin once a day in the morning, because that's when the patient needs most of the insulin with these situations. We discussed also that when there is unexplained variability in glucose, we can use, we can split the long-acting insulin. We can use insulin which has longer duration of action or lower day-to-day -day variability in the duration of action and the action of insulin. And we discussed also that if disabled patient cannot take the dose themselves and family member have to give, they can give once a day every day, irrespective of the time of the day if they use Deglutic. We discussed about a quality measure, and I agree that more than 9% is a poor control, but the quality measures have to be of good quality also, and how it is implemented will determine what happens to health of patients. In terms of new things, empagliflozin and dilaglutide have been approved for preventing cardiovascular deaths in people with diabetes. And we discussed using green top syringes or pens when we use U500 insulin. Thank you so very much. Thanks for listening. You can find additional podcasts and other videos from Selected Topics in Internal Medicine at mailtalks.com. Mail Talks is a copyrighted program from Mail Clinic.